The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Today... Uh, The topic of our show is called Measuring Success, and what I want to do is focus on the public side of museums, and specifically looking at the ways that museums communicate with their audience. Now, museums, of course, have many, many stories to tell. There are stories embedded in the objects or the artworks they house or the ideas they represent, and museums tell their stories in a variety of ways, but primarily through uh, exhibitions and programs. Uh, They have a lot of tools to uh, interpret their their stories from labels on the wall to touch screens to interactive experiences such as maybe a game that you can play or an activity that you can do in the exhibition that helps you understand and sometimes even become a part of the story yourself. And for many people, an exhibit is the entry portal into the museum. It's their first point of contact, and it's their first opportunity for a real conversation. And as we know, a single memorable museum experience can change a life. So there's an awful lot riding on these exhibits and programs. Museums, of course, want to make a good first impression. And how do they do that? So, of course, every museum wants to make a successful exhibit, but what do we really mean by success? Is it the number of people who come through the doors? Well, that's certainly one measure, but what are some of the other ways? How how do we measure memorable? How do we measure success? And how do we learn from one exhibit to another so that we keep improving our communication skills? Well... I'm very excited today to have a colleague and friend of mine, Karen Oberg, on the show today, who is going to help us understand the science of measuring this kind of success. Karen is the principal and owner of Oberg Research, a research and evaluation firm based in New York City. And today, she's going to talk to us a little bit, uh, certainly about how she's gotten involved in this level of uh, evaluation and research uh, for museums, as well as give us a little better of understanding of, uh, of what she does and, and how we know what we know about uh, successful museum experiences. Good morning, Karen. 
Good morning, Carol. How are you? I'm just fine. I'm just fine. As we get started here, Karen, um, the first question I want to ask is how do, you know, I've used words like evaluation and research, but how do you describe the kind of work that you do? So it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, with our colleagues, uh, I certainly use the words evaluation research, and there's there's always um, a distinction there, not a distinction, a philosophy there about whether you're doing evaluation or you're doing research, but whether or not you uh, define it one way or another, uh, really what it is is understanding what people are doing when they're engaged at the museum or at a museum-sponsored program, event, website, whatever's happening. So I also explain it, though, often as an opportunity to find out how the people that come to your museum are actually learning what they're learning and why they're there in the first place, not just rationale. They needed something to do that day. They've got family visiting. uh, They have a school assignment. But why did they choose to go to the museum? There's there's a hundred different leisure activities you could possibly be doing, a lot of them without leaving your house. So what is it that they want from this experience? And why is that, uh, why is the, the, the motivation important, Karen? Um, I think the motivation is important to, from a, a marketing standpoint as well as a learning how people learn standpoint. We want to understand our motivations uh, for visitors in order to uh, get more of them through the door to make sure that the museum is uh, serving the community that it's in. And some motivations of, well, what is it that you expect from the museum when you walk in the door? But it's also, I think, more of a, and that's the pragmatic side. I think it's also a philosophical side of why are people doing what they do? Um, I am, uh, jokingly, I say that I'm just a terribly nosy person. I just want to know why people are doing what they're doing. Not to spread gossip, but just because I'm I'm insanely curious about why 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 is this particular thing of interest to you? Um, and as visitors' interests are changing, as um, society changes, museums need to know that as well, so that they can change along with. That's an interesting point. You um, you mean visitors or, or our audiences change? Um, I think so, in the sense that. For example, um, they change on a, on a very micro level or a very immediate level in the sense of um, when uh, when film, when Disney comes out with things like Night at the Museum, suddenly that becomes a touch point for visitors to now go to a museum. Um, often museums will see a, a slight uptick in their audience participation, audience visitation because some movie or some show has just come out and suddenly that sparks people's interest and that's their motivation. But also, um, culturally, over time, communities can change. Communities can go from not having any interest in a museum or not even knowing what one is, um, which happens with a lot of cultures, to really understanding that a museum is there as as a community resource for them and how it can be used and what can be learned and what experiences could be had. And so they actually change over time. 
So this seems to be, you're, you're really studying a very fluid uh, situation. So the community, you're saying that, the, that, that communities change over time, certainly people change over time, uh, and, and museums change. So it really is quite a dialogue and a dance, isn't it? It's certainly more organic than I think we give it credit for. <laughs> uh, if, if, uh, I think some of us probably still have the image of, of museums from our childhood, um, or even before that, uh, you know, what our parents remember from, from visiting museums, and that's really changed. Um, periodically, there's articles, like in the New York Times, there was one recently, um, where people haven't realized how much museums have changed or have turned a blind eye to how much they've changed. Um, and then there's other articles uh, articles from people um, I see in the Washington Post to any time a museum changes, they, they have problems. So, you know, it can, it can kind of go um, back and forth. But it is definitely organic and it is definitely um, uh, a dance back and forth between making sure you as the museum um, are answering and being a part of the community you're a part of, whatever that, however you define that community, and that you recognize that the community is changing, but that the community outside also realizes, wow, museums aren't what I think they used to be or the image that's passed down in books, um, that really they're these very vibrant places. Well, I suppose it is a, is a good idea that the objects don't uh, come to life at night as they do at the night of the museum. That would give curators quite a headache. But I think so. But, it, but it's, so, it's such a cool concept. And I, I think a lot of, um, I know a number of my colleagues, a lot of us grew up with the book, um, uh, his name now escapes me because uh, it's long. It's the two kids who hide out in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They run away from home and they hide in the, in the Met. Um, the mixed up files of something or other. Uh, but I think we all like that idea of staying overnight in a museum. Like what happens when when the lights go out? What happens when there's no people? I mean, one of the greatest joys I have in working at museums is being able to get to the museum before it's open to the public and just being with the objects. Tell me a little bit more about that. What um, do you experience? So, um I'm not sure. I uh, That's funny. I think that's a question I usually ask visitors. And now that I'm on the other side of that question, it's a little bit challenging. So I think about, like, for example, I, I worked a long time and, and still have colleagues at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And I used to have the opportunity to get there um, uh, either very early in the morning or I was there late at night. And just having these historic objects that were meaningful to me because I'm interested in history and I'm interested in, in flight, um, having those objects uh, just to be around them. But I also, and we hope that our visitors do that, we, one of the things I, as part of my job, is trying to capture that experience through their explanations, which I'm realizing is kind of hard to do, um, to be to be able to share with other museum professionals. So you're asking me, well, what's it like to be surrounded by those objects? And I'm sort of struggling with explaining the, the aesthetic of it. Um, visitors also have to kind of explain the aesthetic of, well, it's just, it just is. <laughs> it's just amazing to be in front of this object. But 
one of my jobs is also to recognize that not every object is that important to every person. Um, and I tend to make curators cry when I say that. But uh, using myself as an example, with the Air and Space Museum, I, I mean, the Spirit of St. Louis and the Wright Flyer are amazing, amazing objects to me. But I seldom get, I don't have the same passion for the space stuff, for the Apollo, for example. And I'm going to make somebody cry. Uh, where I've talked to visitors for whom Apollo, the Apollo uh, module is the reason they're there. And they're just as passionate. And, oh, yeah, the Wright Flyer, whatever. Right. Well, that just goes to to the uh, the challenge that museums have, and also the luxury of of being able to be many things for many different people, and mm. to know and and to acknowledge that there uh, are objects that are touchstones to each of us, whether it's Dorothy's ruby slippers or, as you say, the Apollo capsule, but that museums really, in many ways, hold the stuff of our childhoods and our most cherished memories and and thoughts about ourselves. But, you know, Karen, as you're talking, what it strikes me, um, one way you could have answered my question of, you know, what it is you do is you're really a translator, uh, in a way, you translate all of the ephemeral uh, uh, conversations and comments from uh, the the visitor, uh, the visitors, the the museum's audience to the museum professionals. Uh, I think that that's a that's an interesting role that you play. Uh, how how did you get involved in this uh, this field in the first place? Um. And and I like the idea of translator. By the way, I might have to change my uh, my title now. Um, Feel <laughs> uh, free. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I'll send me a bill for that for that idea. Um, so how I got into it was um, so I've always been interested in in history. I've I went to museums as a kid, uh, which we now know is is actually very important. That if you go to museums as children, you are much more likely to go to them as adults. Um, and um, and so I, I went to college, and I actually studied archaeology with anthropology. Um, the school I went to, I went to American University in, in Washington, D.C., and they had an anthropology department with archaeology as part of it. And I was able to, and I, I went through my anthropology classes, but really I was interested in the archaeology. And I went and, and uh, was part of a field school. I went out and lived in, on a site, on an archaeology site, for, for three months. Um, and discovered a few problems I was going to have with archaeology. And one of those is I'm just slightly colorblind, just enough that I can't really well see the soil color differences, the color differences in soil. This is not a problem 99.9% of careers. In archaeology, this is a huge problem because I was digging into darkened parts of the field that were actually that dark soil is an indicator that there used to be like a pole or a stick or something holding up a building. And I would dig right into it and ruin it. And my archaeology professors suggested that perhaps I should find another line of work. Karen, that's the other r- was that I'm really not a camper. I, I like a Ritz Carlton at the end of the day and I just, <laughs> and coffee and, and things like that. That's no, I Carol. think no, I think I think that that's great. Um, in fact, many of us, I think, have chosen our, our careers for for similar uh, uh, similar reasons. 
Oh, that we that we like comfort. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, and so that's, I. That's I why I'm not a field biologist anymore. Oh, uh, see how I feel much better. <laughs> okay, this has been great. Uh, we are going to take a break right now, and uh, when we come back, uh, more with uh, Karen Oberg on uh, uh, how we measure museum success. <laughs> Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, this is Museum Life with Carol Bossard, and today uh, my guest is Karen Oberg. We're talking about the uh, how museums measure success. And during the break, Karen and I were talking a little bit more about how museums really have changed from a very historic, uh, historic places that just had lots of stuff and opened their doors and let people figure out for themselves what was interesting to something that uh, is is much different today. And so, Karen, have uh, museums always been involved in this kind of evaluation and research? Well, so so the field that I'm in now is called visitor studies. And that field with its name is only maybe about 30, 40 years old. But actually, museums have been 
a place of interest for psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists to study for, for most of the 20th century. There's actually early studies in the 1930s by Arthur Melton, who I believe was a uh, psychologist, um, looking at how many, if you put a visitor in a room with X number of paintings, how many paintings will they actually stop at during the time that they're in the room? And because he was noticing that even though museums put up 24, 32 paintings in a room, if you think about um, the uh, rooms of art are usually that way. And he was noticing that people weren't stopping at every single one. So he decided to do some more formalized systematic tests. And I think that's what makes our measuring success uh, uh, a field is that it's very systematic. So he set up an experiment. What he discovered, in summary, is that uh, it actually um, it matters and it doesn't matter about how many paintings are on your wall. It seems like people can really only hold about six to eight paintings, objects, whatever, without now having to transition to something else. So if you had 24 paintings on the wall, people might only see six or eight of them. If you have six of them on the wall, people will see six, you know, a proportion of the six. So those but, are very yeah. good lessons for uh, for museums to to remember as they're developing their exhibits. It is, but it's also um, in defense of the twenty four objects on a wall. The people who see six person A isn't going to see the same six as person B because of all of those interests that we talked about sort of in the last part in the the first part of the show. So you have to have a lot of variety of opportunities for visitors and that's something else we've learned over time where just so Arthur Melton did that um I think it was Melton also who discovered that there is such a thing as museum fatigue that's a real thing it's that after that hour in the museum and you feel like you've been there for five and you just need to sit down and have a coffee that's a real thing it has to do with the fact there's not a whole lot of light natural light, there's no clocks, there's um, your standing, a bunch of other odds and ends. Museum fatigue and this idea of it really led to the idea that not only do we need chairs and sitting places in exhibitions, but that that's a good thing. Because then we found that if people are allowed to sit, they stay longer. And if they stay longer, they engage more with the objects. If they engage more, they are more likely to pick up the ideas and learn what the museums are hoping that, that they'll walk away with. So, so we have uh, learned a, a great deal, as you said, from, uh, uh, for the la- in the last oh, 60, uh, 70 years about what, what really makes a good museum experience. Are there some mm-hmm. other lessons that we've learned? So, so we've learned other things such as one of the things we're still trying to figure out, but we're getting closer to understanding is what is learning in a museum experience? Because learning, we have trouble tracking that in a formal school setting. I mean, that's the whole issues with standardization or common core or whatever argument you want to get into about that. In free choice learning environments, which is what museums are, people for the most part are choosing to freely go through those exhibits and learn what they want to learn what does it mean to then set up an experience so that they will learn? And what is it that they're learning? And can the museums measure that impact? And that's what's really important to museums now. So 
since Arthur Melton in the 1930s all the way up through the new century, a lot of studies have been done on everything from, okay, let's make the physical environment uh, more friendly and uh, uh, less fatigue. Um, Let's have, once the rise of computers and internet, let's have touch screens and interactives, but what does that really mean? Um, Let's not go away from labels because it turns out that it doesn't matter how long a label is, as long as it's well written. If it's well written, people will read it. You know, there isn't a one, we've learned that there isn't a one precise way that people want to engage with their experience, that you have to have a multiple of ways, or the better exhibits have a multiple of ways. And then you've got, I'm sorry, yeah. No, 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 I, I was I was, I was, was just struck by that, that they're, uh, going back to something that you had said earlier, which is uh, a community can have a museum in its midst that it never really appreciated or there was never a really good conversation between the museum and its its community. And then something happened to spark that, that new dialogue. And I'm wondering, is that uh, because the museum uh, changed the ways in which they started uh, interpreting their uh, artifacts and telling their stories? Um, I'm not actually sure. Um, there is uh, there is actually, within visitor studies, there are groups that study that cultural exchange. Um, and they've, they've found a lot of, of work about museums being agents of um, cultural... Uh, cultural exchange as well as as supporting a community. The There's communities out there that um, literally museum is not, is not a cultural known. I'm actually thinking of a colleague of mine who worked when she was in college. She worked with the Hmong community um, up in Minnesota. And her, her thesis was, well, why aren't the Hmong coming to the community museum? And the local museum, and they can't get them there. And they, no matter what the museum does, people aren't attracted, and they couldn't figure out why. And it turned out the Hmong didn't know what a museum was. It literally was not a part of their culture. And so sometimes you're, I, I find that just fascinating. Um, and so the museum had to start from that point. Um, there's certainly, um, you know, museums are a part of their communities, and and are important parts of their communities and are continue to struggle with somehow proving that. But I, I find that I don't think museums really have to prove that any longer. I think if we look at our recent, recent history, museums are the places that people go to feel safe. The objects, the presence of the museum is familiar whether or not they use it as part of their daily lives. But if you look at, unfortunately, at the tragic events of the last few, last decade or so, it's museums that people flock to. So for ex- the most recent one being the Boston Marathon bombing, the following day, all of the Boston museums were open free of charge and people flocked to them. That it's a, it's a place of safety and of home, I think, for a lot of people. That's a very, very powerful uh, observation, Karen. Museums as a safe haven uh, museums as a as a place of home is that uh, how how uh, other than the numbers how uh, do visitors manifest that when you talk to them uh, in in mm. your work? 
So I think that that manifests a lot in in people who return to museums as adults. So they went to museums as children, but they've come back as adults. And we saw this at the Smithsonian a lot because of the the national museum that it is. Um, These are people that when I've interviewed them for other reasons and I've said, so, you know, what brings you here today? And a lot of the answer we get is, well, I came with my eighth grade class back in the day, whatever the day was, and now I'm bringing my children. Um, that's often the first answer, not necessarily followed quickly, but not necessarily the, I wanted to see this specific object or see this specific exhibit. But there's also people, um, I think we see that in, in membership roles, people who want to be able to return to the museum whenever they want, you know, for paid museums, which are most museums required entrance fee. Uh, they can go in, they can wander however they want. They want to see um, the small exhibits as well as the blockbuster exhibits. And then another way of looking at it, too, is uh, a museum I worked with with um, uh, university classes. I taught uh, at Seton Hall University in New Jersey, and we would we partnered with the um, Montclair Art Museum. And the Montclair Art Museum, which is a lovely art museum, has recently done a visitor study because they were trying to determine whether they needed to update a number of their galleries. They felt that things perhaps needed to be updated um, and that would um, uh, sort of uh, be a punch in the arm for the museum. And what they found from people is that one room in particular, they weren't allowed to touch. The, there's a, a main room which names escapes me. It's quite small, maybe 10 pieces on the wall. And it's always been that way. It's always been the same 10 pieces. And the Montclair community said, oh, you can change anything you want, but you can't change that room. I go back to that room. That room is familiar to me. That room is the museum to me. You can't change that. And that was absolutely fascinating. So they changed everything around it. But that room is still there. I think I think that it, that is fascinating, and it's a good lesson for museums, uh, for those of us who work in museums, to keep in mind that while we may say see something day in and day out, and over time its familiarity almost becomes jarring, or we want to change it just for the sake of change, that uh, our community, whether it's uh, with a community within walking distance or uh, driving distance, or just flying distance will will want the museum to keep their cherished memory mm-hmm. uh, in in the way they've always seen it right and and the community is a really interesting concept too in the sense that I've in my own work I've always felt that that as museums are trying to do outreach so be a part of the community physically outside their doors there's also a a museum community inside the the visitors who come for whom this is um, this is something they regularly do. Uh, they're called often called core museum visitors. Um, they're also often your financial supporters and and people that are members and that sort of thing. But there is once you step through the doors of a museum or once you go to their website, you become a commu- part of the community of museum goers. What does that community look like? And, and how is that community changing? What, are, what is that community's expectations? And what does it mean to be a part of a museum community? Um, you know, for me, going to a museum is the ultimate in comfort. Um, I had the recent opportunity to go to London, and I wasn't five minutes off the airplane where I was sort of jumping up and down going, oh, British Museum, British Museum, let's go, let's go, let's go. 
and I went twice in the week that I was there because the British Museum for me was was the ultimate. And I walked in and I knew where everything was. I had never been there, but it felt very, very familiar. This was a community that I'm a part of. Where so, yeah, I'm sorry. No, where no, no. yeah, where ahead. my my um, close family members actually don't find any enjoyment in museums, and they always they feel guilty. They say, "I know I should go to this museum, but I just don't want to." I'm almost like, "That's fine. I don't go to baseball games. Like I I understand that it's a different community, and that's no problem. But we need to. Um, I think um, occasionally we lose sight of in an effort to constantly being looking outside our doors and making sure that we're inclusive, we also might lose um, looking at, well, what, what does it mean to be part of a museum community? So it sounds as if what, uh, using your specific example, is that when you're a member of a museum community, you sort of know the the rules. You know both the verbal and the nonverbal cues. It's like you know when you go to when you go to a, a foreign country, uh, you go to France, for instance. It's a little challenging at the beginning if you don't know the language or you don't know some of the customs. You have to to watch and observe, and you also have to be uh, a pretty uh, if you're going for the first time, you have to be pretty secure and uh, mm-hmm. self-confident to be able to uh, to wait and to watch and to listen. It sounds as if members of the museum community uh, have learned those skills that, and they can transfer those skills from one museum to the next, whether they're going to London, whether they're in Washington, D.C., or whether they're at the Montclair Art Museum. Mm-hmm. How can have uh, how can your uh, your research findings help museums uh, make those customs and those verbal and nonverbal cues a little more obvious to maybe the first time museum goer? Is that a question? Right. right. Well, so that's part of the problem. Is those of us that are part of the museum community sort of forget that those outside the community don't speak the same don't have the same signals, we'll use the word signals, Um, that what is totally normal for somebody who is um, very comfortable in museums makes absolutely no sense to somebody who has rarely been in them. And that's something I think over the last 20 years, we've we've become much, much better in, um, in recognizing that people that come through the door, um, we need to be just a, a bit more welcoming. <laughs> and we've done that. Um, you can see that both in the research that's been done about wayfinding, how you move around a space, about the fact that there was research done in the 60s that, yes, having restrooms at the beginning is really important because if you need to do use a restroom, that's the only thing you're going to think about, that, um, that having coffee shops is incredibly important because people do need to um, both relax their brains, relax their bodies, um, but also have social time for social experiences, time to process what they're doing, um, even do some work, maybe even catch up now that we're in a, an age where you can kind of do work and home at the same time. You know, they can spend some time at the museum and then they can go to the coffee shop inside the museum or the cafe and, and catch up on work. Um, we... Uh, needed to, we actually did studies that brought all of that to our attention. And it seems 
a little bit ridiculous because it seems like, well, of course you need to have restrooms right in the front. But to museums, it was like, no, no, no. The, the important part was the object. You, that's, that's why people are coming in the door. Yes, they are. But you still have to see to their, their needs first. And then they're very much ready to, to jump into your community. Those are very, very important observations, I think, for uh, both both museum goers, uh, but particularly for um, museums themselves to understand that that uh, that they, like any other kind of um, of of building, of facility, have to look at themselves from the visitor's perspective. And when we come back from our break, Karen and I are going to talk a little bit more about how she actually does what she does in terms of of, of measuring the success. Uh, and if you want to continue this conversation, you can always contact me at carolbossertservices.com and uh, Karen at uh, obergresearch.com. So this is Carol Bossert for The Museum Life. We'll be back in a little bit. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to radio show at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Hi again, this is Carol Bossert uh, with the Museum Life, and I'm here with Karen Oberg, who is an evaluation and research specialist for museums. She is based uh, now in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. She's just recently moved her office. And we're talking today about how museums measure their success. And uh, Karen, mm-hmm. what do you actually do? <laughs> It's funny, it sounds like the uh, meal around the Thanksgiving table. So what what do you do? So um, going on what you said earlier about that, really my job is about translating. It's about translating what is happening with visitors to visitors and translating that back to the um, the museum professionals and, and, and to help them inform their work. And so what I actually do is we, I sit down with museums, and museums usually have a question, a concern, a problem, an uncertainty that they just want a little bit more information about. The understanding is that visitors' feedback and information, their experiences, that's to inform the work of the museum professionals. It's not to dictate it. And I think that's sometimes challenging for museums uh, professionals to recognize that visitors don't want to do your job. They've got their own jobs to do. Um, but certainly what they have to say can be very informative. So the techniques we do use to do that are techniques I think that a lot of the lis- your listeners have probably seen. You've you know, had somebody come up to you in a museum at the end of an exhibit with a clipboard and say, hi, would you mind if, I fill, out, if you f- fill out this survey? Hi, would you mind answering some questions? If those people come up to you, please, please, please answer those surveys. They're probably working for me, and we just need and we need data. We have sample sizes that we're trying to get, um, and uh, so that's one way we do it. It's it's surveys, it's um, observations. We do a lot of what's called tracking and timing, where we actually physically follow people through an exhibit and figure out where they're going, what they're doing, and how much time they're spending there because there are some correlations between the length of time you're at something and um, the learning, whatever, however you define that, uh, that's happening. And so uh, through observations, for example, exhibits, exhibit designers can realize that, oh, the reason that that really important picture is not being looked at is because it's too close to the exit. And we know from years of studying visitors um, in exhibits, they tend to speed up, literally speed up at the end when they see an exit sign because that's just what we naturally do. Um, so we, I do a lot of that. My, my favorite tends to be interviewing um, and uh, whether that's in focus groups, whether that's on the floor of the museum or whether that's actually, we do a lot of virtual interviewing where we call people on the phone. Um, and it's, Yep. Let me Sorry? stop. Well, I just wanted to stop you there, and I understand what interviews are, but I don't know that I quite understand what a focus group is in this context. Right. So that's actually, I thought about that as I said it. So a focus group, traditionally what you see on television, there's two-way bearers and nobody knows each other and it's very formal. Focus groups for what we do tend to be much, much more informal. Or they can be very formal, but we tend to do okay doing them informally. It's often when we want information from a particular group of people, and we we need to find out not did they like or not like something, but what are their feelings about something. So this often happens um, before an exhibit is designed, where we might get a group together to talk about it. So one example is a project, one of my favorite projects, the Brooklyn Museum 
back, uh, the early part of my business back in 07, where I sat down and, and the curator was in the room and the educator was in the room because it wasn't about whether someone liked or didn't like something. It was rather learning what their impressions of this um, exhibit was going to be. So it was fine for the exhibit for designers, curators to be in the room. And it was about the Native American teepees of the 1880s all the way up to the modern period. So I put a model that the curator gave me, a model that she had picked up at another museum of a teepee. It was painted blue. It had all this color on it. It was about a foot in, in height. I put it on the table, and my entire focus group went a little bit berserky because to them, that was an insult. That was not a appropriate teepee to this group of people who were fourth and fifth grade teachers in New York City, um, two of them who were self-identified as Native American, but everybody else self-identified as white or um, African American. But this thing, because it was blue, was was an anthema. It was insulting. This uh, Teepees aren't blue. That's a modern recreation. And I realized that there was a whole issue of authenticity here that we had to approach that wasn't in the original script. So we had a five-minute break. And I talked to the curator, and we said, okay, we need to go down this avenue because they couldn't, our visitor, our prospective visitors, couldn't get beyond the idea that a blue teepee could actually be in existence and was actually a much more valid and real representation rather than the brown teepees we always think of because we see black and white photos or we see archaeological evidence of faded teepees. And it was fascinating. That's the kind of focus group that just, as you can hear, just, you know, it was great. <laughs> sure, Ab- you know? absolutely. And so it- so focus groups can really be used uh, in a variety of ways, but, but more importantly, they really test uh, your assumptions and the museum's assumptions mm-hmm. about what and, they think we know. And in fact, for this particular mu- museum exhibit, which then, the, this was the very beginning, the exhibit didn't go up until 2010, um, and it was a temporary exhibit, so it's back down already. They realized that, um, for example, they, uh, as part of the exhibit, they were going to have um, modern, very modern things inside the teepee. Nike sneakers, a radio, an iPod, or whatever. And they realized that maybe they really couldn't do that with a whole lot of, without having some label text and some explanation to be able to help people understand that teepees are still being used today and that you would find modern stuff. Because that's what because Native Americans are modern people, so it was it was really really fascinating. Um, it also, I mean, I end up talking to people all the time. I talk to visitors all the time, and and that's where I use the term. Um, it's a it's a Mike Myers term. The comedian from Saturday Night Live calls himself a site specific extrovert. He can be really extroverted when he needs to, but most of the time he's actually a pretty introverted person. That's how my life actually my professional life actually works is. If I need to be, I've got my script and I can go into a sea of, of total strangers and ask them questions. But then if I don't have that script and I don't know why I'm there, I tend to be a pretty quiet, introverted person, despite what you might be hearing here. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then lastly, um, you know, just asking the questions is, is not going to get you to the answers that you need about, for example, these issues of authenticity. You need to go back and we actually sit, and I do this with my clients, with my other staff members, we sit and we try to tease out 
the patterns and the data. And that's the information that the museums need. They need to know the patterns of what's going on. Where are people clustering in an exhibit? And what does that mean, that they're clustering all around one picture over another? Or, conversely, why aren't they going to a specific part of the exhibit? Um, they needed to know, okay, so there were these issues of authenticity, but what were people really saying in the focus group about authenticity and about their expectations? And that, for me, is really the fun part of the job, is teasing out what is it that people really mean when they're saying certain things. I want to go back uh, here and and, uh, and to to talk about, uh, or and maybe even using this example, uh, where you had said before that your your job uh, in in gathering this information, uh, analyzing it, uh, uh, identifying patter- patterns, is to inform, not to dictate uh, what the museum uh, need, needs to be doing. Uh, could you talk just a little bit more ab- about that? Do museums at any time resent your coming? In, or I would think that they would be thrilled to have your <laughs> your expertise and, and all of the work that you're doing for them. Um, I don't think they resent me personally, <laughs> um, but there's certainly misunderstandings about what the work I do represents in terms of their professional lives. So in some cases, I've had people, I've had a curator who I had worked with for five years say, in a, in a moment of exasperation, why am I even a curator anymore? The visitors are making all the decisions. And I had to take a step back and explain, okay, I thought, I thought we dealt with this three years ago, but really curators in particular, they're getting very fearful that the visitors are making the decisions. And that's why I keep saying, no, it's to inform the visitors don't want to do your job. They don't know how to do your job. They don't have interest in doing your job. And in fact, the questions we ask them have nothing to do with whether they like or don't like something. I mean, we ask that question. I try to get people not to ask that question because it's not like or dislike. It's engagement. It's um, value. There's other impacts. There's other ways to talk about why this thing's are or aren't meaningful to the visitor. And in the end, if they're more meaningful to the curator, more meaningful to the stakeholders like the funders, the visitor information may be, it may be decided that that's great, but right now we, we need to do it a different way than maybe how the visitor would picture it. I've had one experience, um, and I've forever blessed this woman that she said this because it really opened my eyes to how my business is perceived, which is... Uh, she called me up because a grant was due for a, a federal fan, a federal grant. Um, and she said, I don't know what you do. I'm pretty sure I don't like what you do, but I was told I need to hire somebody that does what you do, and you were highly recommended. And I said, oh, okay, great. Let's take a step back. What do you think I do? And she says, I think you stand over us, us who have 100 years of shared experience at this particular museum, and you tell us what we're doing wrong. And I said, wow, I'd hate me too. That's terrible. That sounds awful. I said, let's start with this. Regardless of whether you hire me, here's what I think I do. And here's why I think your funder is asking for what I do. And how can we work together so that I'm not standing over your shoulder because there is no way I know as much as you do. But I can translate what's happening with your visitors better 
so that you have that information if you want it. Um, and in the end, we didn't get the grant, which was unfortunate. It would have been a really interesting project. Um, but I've always been very, very thankful that this person was that honest, that she, that, that she said that because it really was some insight early on in, my, in, my, uh, in owning my own business into what, how my field was viewed uh, by the outside. That, that is interesting, and, and I would assume that as more both uh, communities and, as you've mentioned, funders, both um, government and private funders, are analyzing uh, and evaluating where their money goes and, mm-hmm. and the kind of impact their, their funds would provide, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the, uh, the evaluation work that you do uh, is going to become even more important uh, to museums. So what are some of the, the key questions that, that museums are still asking? Well, it's funny. They're still we're still trying to figure out how to measure impact. Um, formal school is obviously doing that as well. It's, it's ephemeral. It's, it's, or ephemeral. It's difficult because impact is something that could be 20 years down the line. You went to a museum as a child and now you go as an adult. It might be something immediate. You saw that one painting that, that changed your worldview. It could be something about um, you learned something about your child that has nothing to do with the objects, but has everything to do with the opportunity the museum actually provided for you to engage with your child. And so being able to capture that and then describe it to somebody else, that is still something I think we continually struggle with. Um, It's not a bad struggle. It's actually a very interesting struggle, but it is something that we continue to try to refine. And, um, and also to, to educate our funders that, that content regurgitation is not the only way to uh, measure impact. And in fact, in an informal learning or free choice learning environment, that's actually uh, least, uh, least impressive, I think. Um, I think I think that that is something that, that, uh, that we can all... Uh, all remember and is a good place to leave our discussion today. Karen, on uh, behalf of all museum professionals, thank you for doing what you do. If you thank want you. to continue uh, this conversation with either Karen or I, you can reach Karen at obergresearch.com and you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. Again, this is Carol Bossert and this is the Museum Life. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Music. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.